Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologists Dr. Layla Din Osman, Dr. Mary Simmering McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Rend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety and to help strengthen relationships in their lives. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Layla Den Osman, and I'm so excited to introduce you today our next guest speaker on our podcast, Dr. Kim Hellemans. Dr. Kim Hellemans is a teaching professor and the current chair of the Department of Neuroscience at Carleton University here in Ottawa, Ontario. She received her PhD from Queen's University, where her research focused on understanding the biological basis of drug addiction. She later went on to complete postdoctoral positions at Cambridge University and the University of British Columbia prior to joining Carleton University in 2008. Dr. Hellemans has received several prestigious awards for her passion and dedication to university teaching. Outside of the classroom, she's the co-host of the very popular and award-winning podcast, Minding the Brain. This is one of my favorite podcasts of all time. So if you haven't checked it out yet and you have an interest in neuroscience, I highly recommend that you subscribe. Today, Dr. Hellemans and I are going to be discussing a really important topic, which is the link between technology and social media use in children and teens and mental health. Welcome, Dr. Hellemans. Thank you so much for joining us today on our new podcast. Um, I'm just going to head right into the questions about uh, social media use, technology use, and mental health in children and teens. Um, So my first question for you today was whether or not we've noticed an increase in mental health concerns in kids and teens um, since social media uh, came into existence, um, since we've become more reliant on technology. Yeah, for sure. There's been a lot of discussion both in, you know, the media itself, as well as in the scientific literature about whether we are seeing an elevated, um, elevated symptoms of mental health and elevated diagnoses of things like depression and anxiety since the onset of social media. And yes, you know, absolutely over time, we, we have seen increases. Now to say, is this attributable to social media? perhaps, right? We can't say this definitively because it's correlation and not causation, but we do know that there is good evidence that um, there are some individuals that develop depression and anxiety and it is related to their social media use. It just might not be everybody. So in short, yes, we're seeing these increases in mental health symptoms amongst youth. There is some suggestion maybe it is related to social media or excessive social media use or problematic social media use, but what that relationship exactly is is complex and we probably need to do a lot more research to try to unpack that and figure out what are the causal factors that um, are implicated. Sounds good. Um, So on that note, you know, we're hypothesizing that um, perhaps there is this relationship between excessive use of technology and social media and mental health. What are your um, ideas or thoughts on what the mechanisms behind that impact could be? Like, why would, you know, let's say a teenager who's using social media for hours every day, why would that impact their mental health or how? Yeah, so I'm going to unpack this into sort of two realms. The first realm is really looking at the relationship between the brain and the mind. 
And on that note, let's talk about what happens when you're engaging in social media use. You're probably not engaging in social media use while you're on a run or playing hockey. You're probably engaging in social media while you're sitting on the couch or sitting in bed or doing something else that is essentially sedentary. So we we know that you know when when youth or teens or young kids are are sitting on screens, what that means is that that's taking away from time that they're active. And we know that the brain, which is the organ that is responsible for producing the mind and also symptoms of mental health and well-being, uh, we know the brain likes to activity, right? We know that there's good evidence that aerobic exercise is really, really beneficial to mental health because when you're doing a lot of aerobic exercise, you're pumping lots of things like oxygen and glucose up into the brain and your brain is also um, responding to to the the short-term stressors that are implicated in exercise and exercise physiology. And that ultimately means that the, the, the brain is being better able to cope with stressors in the future. So that's a little plug for exercise uh, is beneficial to mental health. So by contrast, we know sedentary lifestyle is not conducive to good mental health. So there's that piece. The other one that I would say is that lifestyle factor that relates to the relationship between the brain and the mind is sleep. Right. So uh, we're hearing a lot and there's there's good evidence here that um, teens in particular or young adults are spending a lot of time on the phone. And uh, what this means is they're spending less time sleeping as well. So we hear a lot that teens are bringing their phones into bed with them. They're either watching TV or they're engaging in, you know, they're chatting with friends on on various social media. And this sleep deprivation could also be a factor that is mediating that relationship between um, uh, social media use and mental health symptoms. So those are the two things I would say are those lifestyle factors that implicate uh, the brain in particular because the brain likes good sleep, good diet, and good exercise, along with good healthy social connections. So I would say those are the four pillars of mental health. So let's move more to the other mechanisms that we think might be implicated. They're more related to how teens and youths, young adults are interacting with social media. And uh, I'm not sure how much our listeners know about FOMO. Um, It's a term that stands for fear of missing out. And what's happening in, in the 2000s, the 2020s is we we are aware that teens can see what everybody else is doing right we've got you know on snapchat we've got the snapchat maps we've got instagram where somebody's posting all their images of look where i am right the selfies and uh, their social comparison theory suggests that when uh, individuals are, are looking at uh, social media in this way, and they're, they're kind of looking at this and going, I'm not playing a part, uh, that they, that contributes to ill mental health. And by the same token, it fuels further use, right? So, you know, if I'm not on social media, if I'm not on uh, making sure that I'm keeping track of what everybody else is doing, uh, this is going to be problematic. So it kind of does two things. It makes individuals feel bad if they're if they're left out and then it also fuels further use um, because they're making sure they want to be connected the other thing and it is you know related to um i guess the, the one of the pillars around food and food choices and, and and eating well is really important for for good mental health um but 
you know, I, what I hear from, from certainly I teach university students, what I hear from them a lot is um, they'll go on those Instagram stories and the Instagram TV, and they're seeing a lot of influencers that are shilling um, lifestyle products, right? So they're shilling, the, you know, their, their next smoothie um, craze or, you know, do this one workout and you're going to look amazing. And there's a lot of body objectivity that occurs in these spaces. And so uh, there's that piece coupled with also so now you can follow celebrities. You can, you know, see what Kim Kardashian is up to, what Selena Gomez wearing today. And so what you've got is an array of, of images that's like, you know, for, for my generation, it was the magazines, right? It was looking at Cosmo, it was looking at uh, Elle and seeing those images on paper. Now it's, it's, it's more of this image imagery at, at a greater pace and, and faster and they're interacting with them, right? So it almost gives that sense of personal, per, like you're personally in, involved with those individuals. And so, you know, then you can be going, ah, like, look at me, you know, look at my cellulite, look at, I don't have that flat stomach, I don't have those six pack abs. And so uh, this can certainly contribute to body image issues, which we know also then contribute to eating disorders and, and very much there's a lot of relationship between, um, uh, you know, eating disorders and, and mental health in general. The last point I'll say is around social relationships, right? And I'm seeing this, I have a 10 year old daughter. She's just starting to, particularly now, because this is what we're relying on. She's starting to text and she's on Google chat. And um, what I'm seeing is so much opportunity for misunderstanding with her friendships, because as we know as adults, um, and this is something, you know, I'm sure our listeners are aware of that, you know, we lose so much in our communication when we're only in email or text. We don't have body language, we don't have facial expressions. We don't have those little rich pieces uh, of human communication that in, that are telling us more, right? And so there is so much more opportunity for social misunderstandings in these spaces. And then, you know, um, what I hear from my students is this constant pressure to be on their social media because they know everybody is on there all the time right so if you didn't reply back to me right away that must mean that you don't like me and you're pissed at me and no 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 so it just builds and builds and builds and you know even like you know when you text and you can have that red receipt thing <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right, which I took off right away when I got my. I was like, I don't want people knowing what. <laughs> Same here, right? But <laughs> but my my fifteen year old niece has it, and I don't know if there's social pressure to 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 have those things on. But um, I I wonder if if that also you know you 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 have this literal you know receipt that says your recipient has read your your message, but they haven't texted back, and what does that mean? And so there's all these pieces around um, the communication and misunderstanding that I think can also kind of lead to a sense of, oh, uh, she's mad at me or they're mad at me. And, and you know, that can contribute to poor, you know, cognitive biases, which, as we know, as a psychologist, this is what can contribute to um, challenges with, you know, problems with thought, which is at the root of, you know, a lot of our of mental health disorders. So that's a very long winded answer to say that, you know, it's clear yeah. there's, it's complex, right? There's a lot of these pieces that can be contributing to um, social media and, and mental health. For sure. So, you know, although the studies are purely correlational at this point, there's a lot of kind of common sense as to how um, technology and social media can impact our mental health. Like it would make a lot of sense if it was having a directional effect there, right? Um, given everything you're talking about. Um, 
And, and a lot of what you mentioned, I hear in my clinical practice as well, things like, you know, when we're talking, when I'm talking with a teen client about a social misunderstanding and being left on red, that's what they say to me. I was mm. left on red. What do you think that means? Right. Um, and so then we have to go through all the possible scenarios of, you know, maybe he or she was busy or they forgot to get back to your text message. It doesn't necessarily mean they're mad at you. Right. So, um, it, it's interesting having to explore that from a cognitive level, um, in therapy with clients now, right? Um, it's just so much more complicated than in-person interaction where we can talk about intonation or nonverbal cues and things like that to inform when we're looking at facts, right? So, um, really interesting Mm -hmm. points that you brought up, um, for sure. And I think, um, one thing I'll mention here too is, is with, you know, COVID-19 and being home all the time, our, strong reliance on tech right now and social media to socialize, especially my teen clients, right? Um, We're seeing these influences at a level I've never seen them before, right? So Mm. um, I know, you know, kind of informally, my colleagues and I have been talking about, we've been seeing an increased rate of eating disorders in our clients. All of a sudden, clients with no eating disorders are coming to sessions saying they're struggling with eating um, and body image issues. And so one of the hypotheses we had was, they're on social media all the time now versus, you know, they used to be in school or extracurricular and doing all these other fantastic things. Now they're just on social media, a huge portion of their day and the amount of images that they're exposing themselves to that have these distorted views of what, you know, a woman's body should look like, you know, and how is that impacting how they're eating or how they view their body when they look in the mirror. So everything you mentioned, totally relevant and overlapping what we see in clinical practice right now, especially during COVID-19 and, and the stay-at-home orders, right? So mm. um, really interesting um, points. Um, so another question I had for you, uh, since you're a brain expert, you study the brain, um, you know, you're a researcher, uh, how does the brain change? And I'm particularly interested in this question because we know in childhood and adolescence, the brain is changing so rapidly, right? And so when we take a rapidly changing and growing brain and put them on social media or tech all the time, how how is that brain changing or how do we know um, whether or not there is a change that's occurring because of all this tech use or social media use? So probably a good way to start with answering that question is to explain um, how the brain is impacted by addiction, period, right? So I do, and I, you know, I, I guess I haven't mentioned this yet, but I do view um, the possibility for the development of problematic social media use and problematic use of things like gaming, you know, uh, problematic um, gaming disorder, I, th- I believe can be conceived of under the lens of, of an addiction, right? So that's, you know, my, for the, uh, those listening in, my, my background is in the neural basis of addiction. So what do we know about the neural basis of addiction? Well, we know that um, there are a number of circuits in the brain that, that tend to be implicated when individuals engage in uh, problematic substance use. And, and they're not only in problematic substance use, but they're implicated in when people are experimenting with, with drugs. And one of the one of the circuits of the brain uh, is called the reward system, right? So we know that there's a there's a system in the brain uh, it consists of a number of different um, uh, parts of the brain that connected. Uh, when it's activated, indicate 
hey, I feel good, right? So we have the pleasure centers in the brain, right? So, and this this part of the brain um, exists not so that we have a way to say, oh, I just drank a beer. No, it exists so that um, uh, when we eat tasty food or engage in sexual activity, there's a part of the brain that's telling us this feels good. And I wanna remember uh, how to get this in the future if I am hungry or if I am interested in uh, having sexual activity in the future. So it's our reward center, the brain, it's it's there as a way to guide the individual towards uh, activities or events that contribute to survival. And what we know is that um, uh, there is evidence that the, the regions of the brain that are connected in this reward pathway are implicated and do change uh, among individuals that have problematic social media use and also with internet gaming disorders. So let me pause and, and refresh that um, uh, problematic social media use isn't really recognized as an addiction per se by the scientific community, but internet gaming disorder is has been identified as um, a, a disorder to watch, right? And that's uh, as indicated in the DSM-5, which I'm sure you've talked about in your podcast before, so the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So, um, uh, so we'll start out um, talking about social media. So there's a few studies that are showing that individuals, uh, and they've only, you know, so studies are in their infancy, uh, individuals that are um, conceived of as high social media users, which means they consume a lot of social media uh, um, over time relative to those that are low social media users. There's some evidence showing that uh, individuals with high social media use background have low levels of gray matter in the regions of the brain that are involved in reward, right? So loss of gray matter or low gray matter means there's less cells there. Now, importantly, this is not, it's correlational data. We don't know if that low gray matter existed prior to the development of um, the high social media use. That could be the driver, in fact, right? If you have low gray matter in the reward pathway, it might mean you, you want to use, you consume more in order to achieve the same quote unquote high. So that said, there's a relationship there. It's interesting. I want to also just pause and say, well, the other thing we know is that it's not frequency of use that seems to contribute to mental health symptoms uh, in social media or problematic social media. It's other pieces, but nevertheless, there is this relationship between the amount that people are using. When we look at uh, gaming, internet gaming disorder, there's a lot more research that's coming out about that. And uh, we actually see the opposite findings. So there's some research that shows that among individuals that are identified, and this is 14 year olds, by the way, frequent versus infrequent video game players, frequent users have higher gray matter volume in, in that area of the brain that's involved in reward processing. Uh, and so, you know, this is the puzzle of, of what we see with, with addiction. And then uh, there's also some data looking at, um, so that's the structure of the brain, where we can also look at the function of the brain. So there's sophisticated brain imaging techniques where we can put individuals in a brain scanner and we can give them a task and we can look at which parts of the brain are kind of lighting up when, when they're engaged in that task. And what we see is there is, again, changes in, in, in uh, the activity of those brain regions that are involved in reward processing. So there is some evidence that's showing that the, the, these areas are, are different. 
the other area of the brain that I want to mention is, and the other circuit is involved in what's called executive control. So the reward centers of the brain are located kind of deep in the middle of the brain. And they're there to say, hey, go out and find something tasty and yummy and uh, go do it, do it, do it. Right. So, there, you know, you can look at it as sort of the lizard brain that's saying engage in that stuff that, that's going to make you feel good. The very front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, is that executive control center. And its role in part is to kind of quiet down those, those lower brain regions and to say, shh, don't eat the cake. You're on a diet, right? So the prefrontal <laughs> cortex has lots of these inhibitory connections. And the, you know, over time, what we see with people who, who develop substance use disorders or addictions, that front part of the brain that is normally quieting those lower brain regions isn't doing such a good job anymore, right? So the decision-making that executive control is compromised, and that's why addiction is not a choice, right? Because those decision-making centers are compromised due to, to, to chronic drug use. And uh, lo and behold, we see this pattern with internet gaming disorder as well. We see almost the identical findings of what we see with cocaine use, with heroin use, the, that uh, hypoactive, that lesser active uh, front bar of the brain uh, is, is matched uh, when we see this in internet gaming disorder. We haven't done enough studies to look at this with social media addiction, as, at least to my knowledge, um, but I suspect that, that that is something that you might see as well. So in summary, uh, with, you know, repeated tech, social media use, we are seeing changes in the brain among youth and young adults that do match to some extent what we see with substance use disorders in those brain regions that um, are involved in reward and executive control. We, can we can't say it's causal um, because we haven't done a lot of longitudinal studies to see how they're changing over time, but there is some hints uh, and suggestions that there are there are changes that can happen as a result of um, problematic engagement with with social media and technology. Mm -hmm. And as you're talking, you know, it's it's bringing up questions in my mind about um, you know for children and adolescents who struggle with executive functioning skills. So, for example, those with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD are they more prone to get into those addictive type? behaviors with tech or gaming or social media, right? Because it's, they already struggle with that inhibition of, um, stopping that behavior, or that response. Um, are they more kind of in search of that, uh, reward, um, activation in their brain that they're looking for to kind of normalize, you know, their brain functioning? Um, I'm, I'm wondering about that, right? Or whether or not there's some research or will be some research into that area. Cause I'd be curious. I, I would not be surprised if there was an association there. Um, yeah, for sure. As you say, ADHD is marked by a like the prefrontal cortical control is compromised. And so, um, it's, as you say, there's not a lot of research yet, but I wouldn't be surprised either if, if that was a piece of it. Right. And, um, you know, as you're speaking as well, you know, um, I was also listening to a few of your podcasts the other day about um, social media use and, and relationships. Um, and you talked ab about this in those podcasts, but um, this idea that social media and technology has been developed to be incredibly rewarding so that we keep using it over and over again, right? Like every time we get that like, or every mm -hmm. time we get the follow or the ding or email, yes. a text message has come in, there's that hit, right? That hit in our brain of yes. feeling great or rewarded. Yes. So um, it's just so hard to turn that off, right? It's been designed to capture our attention and our motivation in incredibly, mm -hmm. probably incredibly strong ways. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. 
really interesting stuff that the brain studies are kind of um, really demonstrating that association as well. Um, one question I had for you was, you know, since you're an expert in addiction is how do we know like when a child or a teen is addicted to tech or gaming or social media? Like what are some of the signs parents should be looking out for to say, okay, you know, maybe my teenager um, is using this excessively and not in a way that's developmentally appropriate? Yeah. So uh, what I would say is that because there's no definitive diagnostic criteria for for any of this because it's not really recognized yet as an addiction um that's kind of one barrier to to you know educating around this but i would say there are emerging groups and and emerging scholars that are putting out scales uh as measurement tools to to see exactly that like what what are what do what are we tending to see um in terms of behaviors and cognitions and emotions uh that are indicative of problematic use and a lot of that is borrowing from uh, the substance use disorder literature so certainly one of the big pieces is um and what we see with addiction, substance use disorders, and, and increasingly what we're seeing with problematic social media use, for example, is impaired role functioning. So individuals um, that uh, were previously into hockey or um, dance, or you know, they're they're very um, you know enjoy a lot of activities outside of work and school or day-to-day -day life that's kind of gets um replaced by social media use right so they're they're no longer interested in those activities that previously got them um, made them feel good right they're increasingly spending time on social media so we're seeing that replacement behavior and also then it, it could get to a point where you might see your teen or, or your your child um not doing their schoolwork right to prefer uh to be engaging in social media use or so they're neglecting uh, those activities they may uh you know again be quite sleep deprived so watch for that right that they're uh you know it's hard to monitor when a teen is how much they're sleeping but if they seem excessively hard to wake up in the morning kind of snappy and irritable uh that could be an indication uh you could you, you would definitely see i would say mood changing right that's the big piece is that um originally when individuals uh, use substances or engage in social media use probably, and they, they are at risk for developing a problematic um, behavior around that, they are initially uh, using to feel good, right? So they're using to boost their mood and uh, or, or not make them as anxious. And what happens is, is over time, they're actually, you're gonna see the opposite effect. It's actually gonna be promoting low mood. It's gonna be promoting anxiety. So you might be seeing, um, some of that happening uh, with internet gaming disorder it really is marked by loss of friendships right so somebody is much more like in real life or irl uh really really preferring to to be in the online world so friends don't come knocking anymore you're not really seeing your teen getting out of um that gaming chair they're really really much more preferring to be online so you know changing in their activities changing in their mood um you might definitely well you will see increased irritability especially if you're trying to ask them politely to not have their phone at the table right they might get uh snippy and grumpy um and so if you're seeing that they're really really um feeling anxious and scared at the possibility of their phone not being around that's an indicator as well, right? So your your teen, your 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 child should feel okay with their phone turned off, 
And if they're not, that's, that's a, that's a red flag. A red flag. Yeah. And I think, you know, your point is so valid about, um, you know, what, what is this behavior replacing in the person's life and has it replaced too many other positive, um, behaviors, right? So this idea of, you know, everything in moderation, we, we say, right. So, mm-hmm. you know, tech use and moderation, maybe not so bad, but excessively it's going to start taking over, you know, your in-person interactions or your extracurricular activities, uh, or other things that bring joy and happiness to your life. Right. So when it starts to take over, um, that's kind of an indication that it's not a healthy behavior or habit. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's true of everything, right. No, no different than other addictions, um, that we see. So, um, that's, that's great. And, you know, my next question for you would be how can parents help their children or teens have healthier habits around tech use? So this is a really difficult and important question because especially right now with COVID-19, right, we're all so reliant, overly reliant on tech and social media to socialize. Um, but how can parents help kind of model or guide their kids in a direction where we can start um, thinking about having healthier tech use as we uh, continue? Well, I would say I always approach um, these kinds of conversations from the lens of harm reduction, right? So the harm reduction approach we use in, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this in the addiction realm, in a harm reduction approach, we, we, we don't say don't do it. Right. We assume individuals are going, teens in particular, they're going to experiment with alcohol and drugs. They're going to experiment with sex. They're going to engage in social media to completely say, don't use it. Don't be on it is not, it's just not going to happen. Right. And, and particularly given this, realistically, this is where um, most uh, young adults are interacting with their friend groups, particularly saying COVID-19. Right. So we don't, we don't want to shut that down completely, but the, the first piece of harm reduction is education, educate, 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 so that individuals can make informed decisions, right? So all, you know, have those conversations with your child about the dangers of using too much technology, right? You know, let them listen to this podcast, right? So that they themselves also have the the information at hand Um, at, you know, ask them to engage in in self-reflection, right? After you've been online for an hour or two hours, how do you feel? Do you feel grumpy? Do you feel irritable? Do you feel enlightened? Um, You know, ask them to kind of sit in that reflective space and, and, you know, what are those emotions that you're feeling? And, And if they're feeling grumpy, irritable, what have you, hey, might there might this be related, right? So so getting them to really dig in and and make that association between mental health and and perhaps excessive technology use is really valid because you're empowering them to be making that for themselves. You're not saying, hey, I've noticed that you're irritable. Say just you know after two hours, how are you feeling, right? Um, talk to them about the misrepresentation of, of body, right? I'm already doing this with my seven and 10 year old girls, right? Who are, you know, my, my seven year old loves this YouTube channel where, you know, it's this beautiful young lady who is, you know, has a, an amazing body for, you know, that age. And, and, and my seven year old has looked herself in the mirror says, I don't have that waist. Well, no. Right. So, you know, so we talk about how, you know, there is this emphasis on on um, uh, these more unrealistic body types. And I think that that's really, really, really crucial, particularly for, for young girls. 
And, you know, if there's any uh, educators out there, your teacher, principal, your member of a school board, you know, I do think there is a place in the schools to have these kinds of conversations with young, uh, young children, because it is so prevalent, it is so pervasive, and especially now, right, we may well be in, in you know, in a totally new era. Uh, where it is more likely to have um, Google Meets, right, for various reasons. And now I think Ontario is saying virtual schooling could continue beyond um, uh, the present day. So uh, all the more reason to talk about healthy behaviors around using those Google Chats and, um, you know, what it looks like to, to be on social media for long periods of time. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in education, and I do think it is incumbent upon our, our, our government to also provide that education at a young age because we know you can't start too too early here's one that's hard right and i admit i am i am i struggle with this is modeling positive technology use right so um i you know i am somebody i'm very plugged in and connected um i am on a lot of social media platforms i I do enjoy um, social media and uh, it's difficult for me to un unplug. And I find at the end of a day, uh, I am um, sometimes I just want to sit down and kind of scroll on Twitter or Instagram and just kind of check in with my friends, right? Because I, I'm also feeling disconnected from my friendships. And then I also use my phone for work. Right. So I'm answering emails and, and what have you, and it's everywhere. And I think uh, I could do a better job of of limiting my technology. We do not use them at dinner time and when we're eating. That's definitely something that I would say is is a is a big thing. If you cannot have phones, iPads, screens at, at, at if you're enjoying a family meal together, uh, that's a huge one. Try to interact, you know, with your kids without technology. I know that, you know, it's, it's tough. And, and I recognize my privilege here, right, that some some folks and some parents um, may not have that uh, ability to, um, you know, step away from their screens at times or not use screens, uh, especially now. I would say boundaries are really crucial setting limits on how much uh, technology and screens uh, individuals can engage, your kids can engage with. Uh, one hour a day, for example, which includes your phone, your iPad, your computer, your TV and video games. Um, you can set Wi-Fi parental controls as needed. Again, I know this is hard, particularly with teens, um, but I would say if you cannot have them bringing their phones into bed with them, I mean, that's a habit that can start early. I know sometimes it's hard if you already have the habit, if your 16 year old is already getting your phone, her phone in at night and chatting with her boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, then, um, you know, that's a hot, hard habit to break. But if you can start making sure that that's happening with your 10 year old, your 11 year old and 12 year old, then, you know, that's a family rule that could that you could have. Uh, I think it's a really, really important one because we, again, related to that sleep thing, um, you, you want to make sure that they're getting adequate amounts of sleep, especially as teenagers when their brains are developing. And then on the flip side, ensuring that kids are getting uh, activity, right? I think the Canadian guidelines is around 60 to 90 minutes um, per day of activity uh, for kids of, of uh, um, up to the age of 12 and, and certainly beyond that, you know, there's, there's always, always a reason to be active, um, enroll them in sports, um, 
any physical activity. Uh, again, knowing, be mindful that COVID is, is a bit of a barrier here, but uh, my, my seven-year-old does dance on Zoom uh, every Wednesday and we've got her in virtual soccer. Um, my 10-year-old, uh, she loves swimming. Um, uh, so that's a bit hard to have swimming lessons and she loves skating and get a bit difficult, but we try to get her out biking and, and uh, getting a, some activity every day. So those are, you know, some ways, right? Perfect. Yeah. And I think, like you said, the less unstructured time kids have, then the less um, motivation they'll have to get on those iPads or their phones and start scrolling, right? So the more activity, the busier yeah. we keep them, uh, the less motivation there is to do that that kind of thing. Um, and it's okay to have kids be bored. Yes, that's the other thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so this brings me to my last question, which is, what are three coping tools that children and teens can use in order to avoid using tech or social media excessively? So I would say, uh, riffing off the the last question, I think there are three um, three ways certainly that the teens and young adults and adults really uh, can use, and and the first is um, that awareness piece, right? So, you know, think about how you're feeling before. Um, you, you engage in social media and I've actually started this practice as like, why am I doing this? Right. Am I bored? Am I seeking stimulation? Am I anxious? Am I, um, just wanting to get informed? Right. Like, so hit that space before you hit the, the button, right. As what am I feeling before I engage in social media? And then what am I feeling after? Um, if you feel sad, angry, irritated, oh, fear of missing out, everybody's out having a good time except me probably not a good sign, right? And um, that's definitely what I say about drug use as well, right? They're, the red flag of drug use is uh, using alone and using um, to escape or alleviate poor mood. And then you find that you're actually feeling worse over time. So um, th these awareness pieces are really, really crucial. Again, it's not to say that you shouldn't be using um, in, in particular with social media. It's to say that, hey, maybe you should think about cutting down or controlling your use to some extent, right? Uh, take breaks, uh, set boundaries about who and what you're following, uh, how often you log in. Uh, you can set these timers on your phone, right? So now we have these apples telling us on our iPhone how often we're spending on our screen time. And mine weekly tells me your social, your screen time use is up. <laughs> no, right? But yeah, I think, you know, I, I joke, but I think it's important to be reflective and to to, to have those, those boundaries. Um, I think, frankly, um, I think particularly with young kids, it's probably not a good idea uh, to have um, your accounts be open, right? Uh, you should be set to private. You should have only folks that you know and trust, friends, parents, whatever, uh, that are uh, engaging with you in those spaces. This is really, um, you know, for your own protection in many ways as well, but um, definitely, uh, uh, you know, being aware of who and what you're following and why, why you're doing that why you're, you're following certain people is really crucial. Uh, I've heard also, if you can have your settings on your phone, um, you know, you have the push notifications, right? Turn them all off, except for ones that, that are from humans, right? So text messages, emails, if you want, right? Those are ones that maybe you should have on. Don't get push notification from the robots right? Instagram. Oh, you have a new thing. Facebook. Oh, somebody's commented on you. Those are the robots, 
pulling you in. So turn off all your push notifications. And finally, challenge the way you think about social media, right? If you're if you're following all those these celebrities and social media influencers, ask yourself, are they actually happier? Are they actually more popular, more prettier, more skinnier than you? We know that mental health and and wellness affects everybody, right? So looking at somebody who has the fabulous life that's 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 artifice right and and we know everybody has struggles everybody's fighting a battle that you don't know about and so be grounded in reality right it, it social media is not representative of real people's lives the grass is not always greener on the other side even if you're selena gomez <laughs> it's so interesting because i think um in recent months we've seen a lot of these influencers or, or you know famous people coming out talking about their own struggles with mental mm-hmm. illness. Um, so even though they're rich and famous and beautiful, it doesn't necessarily correlate with being happier, like you said. And so to constantly um, be envious or value that lifestyle is not necessarily going to bring yourself any more happiness, right? So um, being focused on yourself and, and you know being grateful for what you have, Spot I on. think, is always a better mm-hmm. strategy. Um, so, I mean, that sums up my questions for you. I am so thankful for you taking time. I know you're very busy, um, for our podcast. I know our listeners are going to love this episode. It is so relevant, especially today, uh, during COVID-19 and all of us being home. Um, and I just want to thank you again for your time. I really, really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It was a real pleasure uh, to have this conversation with you.